In the last 48 hours, I've had two near-death accidents. I've had the Mexican Mafia try to shoot at me. I had some fucking animal try to rip my fucking head off. And I haven't had breakfast yet. So, please, don't fuck with me today, okay? Junk Food Dinner 665. We're back with three wacky movies and three wacky boys. First, scientists go to the core of the planet in journey to the center of the Earth. Next, Two violent lovers go on a mission to Vegas. Finally, a boy is chosen to help local monsters in the Great Yokai War. Food Dinner, episode 665. This is the podcast where each month we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in LA. Uh, this month, we've got two family-friendly flicks, and one definitely not family-friendly flick, as we take a look at Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959. Perdita Durango, a.k.a. Dance with the Devil from 1997, and The Great Yokai War from 2005. But first, gentlemen, how you doing? I'm all right, you know, just over here uh, doing the same old stuff, you know, uh, a little bit angry about this headphone situation, but good, good. Good to hear. How you guys been the last month? Enjoying your summer? You doing anything fun for Independence Day? I celebrated our independence by mourning uh, our our greatest living British actor, Julian Sands. That's what I do. Oh, yeah. It was finally confirmed. He's been missing for a while. There was concerns he might have been swept away by the storms, but they found his bones, huh? Yeah, they found his bones, bleached in the sun, uh, combined with the bones of a gorilla, as was in his will. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a Tom Green reference. I don't remember. But, um... Yeah, yeah, they found him. Very sad, very sad stuff. I was actually listening to a new Brett Easton Ellis podcast, and he apparently had dinner with this man the week that he went missing. So I feel like Brett Easton Ellis is pretty sus. He's, he's high on my list of suspects. I hadn't heard that twist in the story yet. But it, but I do feel like it, it is only like you know appropriate that this happened in the way that it happened, because the thing that I've always heard about Southern California is that you can see snow and sands in the same day. You know, it seems like that's what happened here. Yeah, it had tragic results, but it's something that is possible in California. So do they know what happened? I mean, yeah, what kind of storm did he get caught up in? Was it, you're saying a snowstorm? Yeah, there was a that big snowstorm. That doesn't sound storm. right. Oh, no, it's true. It is Come true. On, yeah. don't play with me. No, we're, we're being deadly serious. In these mountains up here, they're dangerous. They got all kinds of snow. And we had like the biggest storm here in, you know, 30 years or whatever, so... And he was mountain climbing? Yeah, he loved it. Okay. It's one of his favorite pastimes. Well, R.I.P. Mr. Sands, but yeah, sad to hear. I know you love the man. I I remember I saw Julian Sands in person at one of the first Horror Hound conventions I went to, and he was sitting very lonely at a table waiting for someone to come up and buy an autograph from him. And uh, had I known that, you know, maybe he wouldn't be around for another 10 years, maybe I would have taken him up on that autograph offer, but... Alas, you know, you regret the shots you didn't take. Yeah, well, and you could have warned him, you know, like you, that was your chance to save <laughs> this man, and you blew it. 
Yeah, well, I will play the Highlander, or not the Highlander, the Wishmaster uh, Sega Genesis game tonight in his memoriam. You mean Warlock? I mean Warlock. Disrespecting this man. Yeah, the Warlock video game. Sorry, who's who's Wishmaster? Nobody, huh? Now that's Andrew Divoff, the great actor. Andrew Divoff. Everybody right. knows the, the uh, Wishmaster. Did they have a Wishmaster Sega Genesis game? I don't think so, but they should no. have. They had a Page Master game with Macaulay Culkin. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, not too much going on over in my neck of the woods this uh, this past week. I, I guess the most exciting thing that happened to me was I uh, took a trip over to Big Lots, walked away with a uh, a big old bag of uh, of dots. You know that candy dots? You guys like dots? Refresh my mind. Refresh me on what dots are. are those like kind of gummy little things. Yeah, they're from the Tootsie Corporation, and I believe you would refer to them as a gum drop. Sure. Okay. Right. I think it's a gum drop variety, um, but they're good. I mean, they they taste kind of like if uh, if Mike and Ike's had no hard candy shell, and they were just that kind of jelly on the inside. Okay. Well, why why would you deprive yourself of that hard candy shell? That's like the best part. Well, sometimes you want to be chomping incognito. You don't want those loud noises of, of a Mike and Ike's to be disrupting, you know, people nearby. You want to silently snack. Yeah. Like if you're like lurking about. I hear that. I understand that. I've yeah, done some yeah. lurking in my time. Mostly in, in lurking type scenarios, you know. In a, a dark alleyway, for instance, Dots is a great candy for that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, I probably haven't had a Dot in 20 years, so I'll, maybe I'll have to there. refresh. Yeah, yeah, I just I haven't had the desire. Not the hey. biggest fan of like the, the gumdrops and stuff like that. Sure, I understand. You don't have to be the biggest fan, though, to give a, a big old bag of Dots a try at the local Big Lots. I mean, I think it cost me two bucks. All right, well, there you go. It's a great deal. Dots for all. I thought you were at first maybe talking about those little, uh, you know, the, the things that come on a piece of paper, those little like dots of hard candy on a sheet of paper. You know what I'm talking about? Me, Kevin? Dude, you cannot chew those incognito, Kevin Moss. No, I know. But when you just said dots, <laughs> the first thing I thought, man, that no, was man, the, what came to mind. It's almost like you have never even lurked in a dark alleyway. I try not to. Okay, well, fair that's enough. for that's for yeah. scoundrels. I'm a gentleman. Okay, well, that's why you're you're eating the gentleman's candy, paper roll mm-hmm. with dot candy on it, whatever the hell that <laughs> yeah. thing is called. They have yeah. to have a name. I think those that's are the candy 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 dots, right? Yeah, you put those on like a sash, like you're the mayor. Yeah, right. That's why. Like that's I, why. You like I just won first prize in a beauty contest. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's why a guy like you can't be seen lurking. You're well regarded in the community for your beauty contest winnings. <laughs> yeah, first place. <laughs> Speaking of candy, though, you guys see that Willy Wonka trailer? Oh Lord, no! The mm-hmm. Timothy Chalamet. Yeah, I think it just dropped today. I believe it sure so, did. It looks bad. Yeah, I'm I mean, not that's, interested. That's all you need to know. It looks bad. I mean, I'm not sure. At what point we decided, I guess it was after Gene Wilder, we decided Wonka doesn't have to be fun or funny anymore. We're just going to put weird, creepy guys in in this role. (laughs) Well, one thing that confused me, and it's been a long time since I've seen the original Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But in this, he like, according to the trailer, he like takes over the town and he's like making everybody fly and like 
doing all this crazy shit. And everybody's like, oh, my God, this guy has magic in his candy. But it's like when you get to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, he's like an old recluse. And like it, the whole point of the movie is like you think he just runs a normal candy factory and then you go inside and then it's magic. So like did everybody just fucking forget this guy was magic or like what happened? Like it, it's, I don't know. it seems like they're retconning the entire original one. Like, I don't know. This is like the whole problem with prequels. They also retconned Hugh Grant into a Oompa Loompa role. And I'm over here thinking, don't we have real little people out there that would love to be in this huge budget movie? Like, why does it got to be Hugh Grant? Like, it's the same thing with uh, Colin Farrell getting all fatted up as the penguin. It's, you know, let's let's let unique people out there play these roles rather than always getting the most handsome man in the world to play these parts. Can't do that anymore. It's offensive to the little people to make them play Oompa Loompas. So you got to take away all their jobs. That's the only way to to help them, I guess. I guess so. Also, it just looks like a Harry Potter movie, which I, I guess it's from the same mm-hmm. producers. So that makes sense. But I don't know. Yeah, It definitely looks very Harry Pottery. Yeah. Well, yeah, I've been having a pretty fun time since the last time we talked. I went, Parker, you'll appreciate this. Uh, our friend Justin, who does his monthly screenings here in Cincinnati, uh, played the new uh, 4K director's cut restoration of Greg Rackey's The Doom Generation, which was fun to see on the big screen in a packed house with uh, lots of adoring fans of the film. And yeah, it was a great time. Uh, I think everybody had a lot of fun, despite uh, the kind of grim nature of that film, especially towards the end. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of fun, fun soundtrack. I think this new restoration looked really good. Um, I, I'm not super familiar enough with the film to know what was, you know, restored, but this is the official director's cut that he showed at the Cannes Film Festival and all that stuff. But if you're more familiar with like the home video version, according to Greg Racky, that version was badly butchered, especially the one that was released on VHS back in the day i think subsequent dvd releases might have uh restored a little bit of it but this is what he's calling the definitive cut of the film this is the way he wanted it to be seen um there was some surprisingly graphic stuff in it that i think was still in the original cut that i saw but um especially in that last part when i mean i don't want to spoil it but i mean it is a fucking 30 year old movie um (laughs) But yeah, the when when the shit goes down at the end, there's some pretty graphic stuff going on there. Um, Big Dick Daddy from Cincinnati. That's what I said. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it was. Uh, I, I I I'll be honest. I've always been kind of a little lukewarm on that movie. I I mean, really? there's stuff about it I like. I mean, I think it looks cool, and I love Rose McGowan. But like the dialogue always kind of bothered me. Like you know, the whole eat a bowl of fuck and all that stuff. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> kind of eye-rolling to me. It's kind of like, like proto-Juno in a way, that dialogue. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. It's, it always just kind of kind of was a, a bit annoying. But that being said, I had a lot of fun watching it uh, this time around. And uh, I think I have a new appreciation for it. So, yeah, I thought it was fun. Ah, very nice. I'm glad to hear it. I, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very eager to see this. It didn't play anywhere around here, but it played in... LA and stuff, but I, it's very hard to drive there. So I haven't seen it yet, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely going to buy what, like, uh, whatever 4k disc this is going to be on. And I think it's on criterion. It's on criterion. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say, there. yeah, if you want to check it out, it is on the Criterion channel now streaming. But yeah, I'm sure there will be a physical release of it coming soon with this new restoration. So yeah, check it out. Yeah. And hopefully this leads to some of his other stuff getting put out because Nowhere, um, right. which I think is his masterpiece, is has I don't even think that's ever been on DVD. Uh, and then. Yeah, I think totally, same with Totally Fucked Up. Yeah. Yeah, like all that stuff's super hard to find. So uh, it'd be great if, if it all came out. I, yeah. I feel like a lot of times Criterion, if they get one movie from a director and, and they can get the other ones, they usually will. You know, I'm not sure what the rights are like on that stuff, but I'm sure that they would be open to it. Yeah. The soundtracks to all his movies are like so insane that I'm sure that's what's holding it up. Like they all have like just 50, you know, hit jams on them from from the 90s. So. Yeah, especially Nowhere. That one's a loaded soundtrack. I mean, I remember there was a lot of people that I knew that had, in high school, had the Nowhere soundtrack, didn't even know it was a fucking movie, I think. Yeah. They just had it for the the jams. Yeah. That's how it went. But, so, yeah, it's probably part of what's holding those up. Yeah, and apparently, I, I think Iraqi has a couple, like, really low-budget, like, movies that he made, like, straight out of film school that are, like, black and white, like, shot on a Bolex camera you know in like eight millimeter um that have never been released on any home video format so that'd be cool if those got released too like the stuff you yeah. made before the living end that would be rad i want to see it all i actually just uh watched he he had a short-lived tv show on the stars network that ran for one season um like two years ago or something that i i just finally got to see and it's uh also pretty fun nice still got it well sounds like one guy on the show does not have a racky phobia that's right. And that's Bowman, because <laughs> he loves the guy. Yeah, that's true. Ha! <laughs> but yeah, so that's been fun. I uh, went to a couple concerts. I saw the Pixies in their old-ass age. That was fun. Oh, yeah. How old are they now? <laughs> Who knows? Probably in their 60s, I yeah. would, I'd have to imagine. But it was still a fun show. The only downside played a lot of new pixie songs which oh. let's let's not do that anymore guys come on no one's here <laughs> and it was an obvious i mean and you know an obvious enthusiasm drop every time they're like here's a new one and everyone's like oh just play just bone pl- machine please <laughs> yeah, exactly well and they don't have kim deal anymore so they're not playing a lot of bone machines or gigantics either so oh, also God a bummer but uh, the songs that they did play that were, you know, the classics sounded good and had a lot of fun with that. That was nice. All right. Yeah. That's a bummer for that band. They lose Kim Deal. They lose Kim Sh- uh, Shattuck from the Muffs, who was in the band for a while. They're losing all the best ladies. Yeah, although they've got uh, the, the lady that's playing bass for them now. Uh, I forget her name, but she's like the go-to like replacement bassist. Like I think she replaced Darcy and Smashing Pumpkins for a little while, <laughs> and then she was in that Billy Corgan band Zwan. But she mm-hmm. she does a good job, um, and she sounds a lot like Kim Deal when she sings. So uh, it was a, it was a good facsimile. If you if you can't have Kim Deal, uh, I guess get get this lady. But um, speaking of Kim Deal, the Breeders. Are, are touring they're coming around here in a couple months i might go see them they're doing their i think it's the 30th anniversary of last splash if you can believe that and they're wow. doing the tour for that so you know you can get your deal fixed still that sounds who like o- a great deal who opens uh-huh. for a pixies these days 
Uh, it was Franz Ferdinand, who oh, wow. I, were actually really good. I had kind of forgotten about that band. Um, but, you know, I thought they were okay when they were originally out, but they put on a hell of a show, like really high energy and a lot of fun. Um, and then the other opening band was a, a, a band, another, like a new band that I really like called Bully. And they were also really good. So, yeah, it was a pretty good show. Nice. Yeah, I mean, Franz Ferdinand, I'm not too familiar with them, but I, I do know that they were pretty huge at one point. So it's cool that they're opening. Yeah. yeah. I remember being uh, everybody when we were at the uh, the Wright State radio station, everybody loved them at that point. They were, they were hot, that band. They were very they were. hot. Danceable, some would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember people just dancing in the DJ booth as you would walk by. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. You guys want to check in and see what kind of uh, dancing the folks out there in Junk Food Dinnerland have been doing in this week's segment of Junk Mail? Absolutely. <laughs> Parker, hit me with one of them voicemails. Oh, we got this guy. You know him. <laughs> Hey guys, it's your old buddy Kyle from Kentucky. I hadn't called in in a while. I wanted to give you an update on my life. Uh, as you all know, I told you I quit my job of 22 years at a Caterpillar dealership. I've been on a little bit of a sabbatical for the last three and a half months, sitting in the home watching Beverly Hillbillies and uh, Hell's <laughs> Kitchen and just about any uh, righteous gemstones, uh, Fox principles, you know, just about a lot of different stuff. And uh, I've learned a lot about uh, pop culture, and I think I'm ready to go to work. Well, the last episode of Junk Food Supper, y'all were talking about the Mothman. And today is Thursday... Of the week of the fourth, I don't, what is it, the seventh? It might be the seventh. I don't know. But tomorrow, I'll have to go to what's called Gallipolis, Ohio, which is like the town that's right across from uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, where they got the bridge, right? The Mothman Bridge, the one that fell out, fell in in like the sixties or seventies. So that's where I got to go. I, gotta, I used to hang out with some guys from in college that were from Gallipolis, and they called it Gallon of Piss. Gallup, oh. wow. I got to go make my new job there. I'm I'm going to be a salesman for uh, industrial tooling, so I'm going to be going all through the Huntington area and selling stuff to uh, different vendors and you know different companies in that area. And I'll probably go to Camden Park. So if if uh, Kevin, if you want me to steal parts off the 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 Spook house, I will, you know, because I'll be right there and, you know, right there next to Camden Park. It's going to be my area. So yeah, I know how much it means to you. Hell, you may be able to build, I can steal the part. It's like Johnny Cash style, one piece at a time. <laughs> and we can build the uh, spook house in your backyard. But uh, guys love the show. And it, it, uh, I understand that, you know, everything's changed over the years. Y- y'all done a lot of work for you know, not a lot of money, or not much, not no, no money. So, but I, I, I've been listening to you since my, before my daughter was born. She was born in one eleven eleven. 
what is it, 12 years ago? I, I think I was listening before that, actually, just a couple of weeks. But, no, I've, I've, I've always been a big fan. I, I might be wrong. I don't know the dates. But, uh, but no, guys, I love the show. And, you know, Kyle from Kentucky is always going to be a character on one of these shows. <laughs> hey, keep up the good work, guys. Hey, Sweetman, how you doing? Love you. Ah, <laughs> thank you, Kyle. Love you too, buddy. Always great to hear from Kyle. And yeah, That's man. Funny. Well, first of all, um, glad you're enjoying your sabbatical between work. I hope whatever the, this new job is that you're doing, that you still get to watch Shake Hands with Danger once a year, because I know that was a big <laughs> thrill for you every year at your job, getting to watch Shake Hands with Danger, or at least some equivalent safety video. Uh, so, so I appreciate that. And yeah, um, I am very familiar with Point Pleasant, West Virginia and Huntington, West Virginia, as they're not too far away from me here in Cincinnati. And I, I do love, uh, Camden park. Like you mentioned, the hundred plus year old amusement park there in Huntington, West Virginia, that is home of one of the last remaining pretzel dark rides in the country, the haunted house there at, uh, at Camden park, which is a lot of fun. And I, I, I encourage you not to steal parts because let's let's leave that there for the folks in in West Virginia to enjoy. It's a it's a goddamn you know monument. It's a historical uh, place, so let's leave that there. But if you if you want to snatch you know maybe a you know maybe a, one of the spooky masks off the wall or something, I, I I could I could get behind that. But yeah, Point Pleasant also very fun. Like you mentioned, home of the Mothman. They've got a lot of really cool Mothman stuff there. If you've never been, they got the Mothman statue, they got the Mothman Museum and gift shop, uh, all kinds of Mothman memorabilia and stuff to be had. And if you get a chance, they have a Mothman festival every year. I don't, I don't know when exactly it happens, but if you get a, if you're working a lot in that area and you happen to be there during the Mothman festival, definitely go. And then the other place I would definitely recommend in in that area, I think it's right between Huntington and Point Pleasant, is Hillbilly Hot Dogs. One of the greatest hot dog places in the world, and it's all hillbilly themed. You can eat inside an old school bus. It's like uh, the place looks like an old like hillbilly shack. If you've been watching the Beverly Hillbillies, I think you're right in the mood for a hillbilly hot dog. So check that out when you're in that area. This and of course, wonderful. yeah, and of course, thank you for all your years of patronage and friendship with the show. We love you, Kyle. You know we do. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the yeah. things that that warms my heart uh, over the years is like, you know, like I'll be like Facebook friends with like people who've been listening for a long time and stuff. And like, like now they've got like these grown ass kids, like Kyle from <laughs> Kentucky, you know, like, yeah. I remember, you know, like, you know, like 10 years ago, they'd be like, Hey Parker, I like your show. So I added you uh, to be a friend. This is my embryo here. And now they're like full grown adults. These kids, it's, it's wild to see. Yeah. I, I mean, I think we've, seen the maturity the the maturation of mr kyle from kentucky over the years i mean i remember when he was calling in you know talking about snorting cocaine and fucking hookers and all that stuff and now <laughs> he's talking about his 12 year old daughter and uh you know his responsibilities at work and you know i love to see it I, I mean we were all getting older we're not the same party animals we were back in 2010 when we started the son of a bitch We've gone through a lot over the years. We went through a fucking pandemic together. We went through, uh, you know, Donald Trump presidency. We went through all kinds mm -hmm. of shit. Uh, we're weathered. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I love that some of you guys have stuck around for the long haul. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I love it. 
What's a pretzel dark ride? That pretzel was the company okay. that made these dark rides back in the day. So, but it's basically a, it's like kind of like a roller coaster where it's, it's, it's pulled by a chain up a hill and then the rest of the dark ride is on a downhill slant. So you, you are basically oh. free moving throughout the dark ride uh, at the will of gravity. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You got another call for us, Mr. Bowman? Indeed I do. I got one right here. I'm not sure who it's from. Mystery. Hey, Junk Food Theater, Matt from Arizona. I'm actually calling in for Junk Food Supper, so I don't know if this will make it on the dinner episode or not. If so, I apologize for crossing the streams. But um, I think it's good that you guys are doing, like, one movie with a supper. I like that. It lets you go a little more in depth. And then you switch back and do three like normal. I like it. It kind of mixes things up. But I just want to say, man, don't now... I loved, I was so happy you chose that. And then you chose Thief, and I fucking loved Thief. I just saw it for the first time, like, a year ago, and, like, I just fell in love with that movie. So I'm really glad you chose it. And uh, like you said, Sean, Jim Belushi, you know, like, I actually kind of like him. I think he's really great in this. I, I was kind of ambivalent normally, like, something like, yeah, Jim Belushi, but in this, I think he's actually really good. I didn't even recognize him at first. I was like, He's really young in it, but um, yeah, just an absolute banger of a movie. So fucking good, and and kind of in, in line with you know Tough Guy Summer or whatever. Real tough guy shit. I love it. I love it. It's just so hardcore. Um, so looking forward to that. That's all. I'll shut up now, um, and uh, you know keep the faith. <laughs> Thank you for calling in. Was that Matt? He said that was Matt. Yeah, yeah. Matt from Arizona. Uh, well, I'll let you guys feel this since you are, you know, this is more of a supper-related question. I'll, I'll back off on this one. <laughs> well, have you seen the movie Thief, the Michael Mann movie, Kevin? I, I have. I love it. Um, like Matt, I I came to it probably about 10 or so years ago, shortly after that movie Drive came out with old Ryan Gosling, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I remember reading a lot of reviews comparing it to Thief. And so I was like, well, I like Drive. I got to see this thief. And so I checked it out. And yeah, James Caan, fucking badass. It's a great film. Great soundtrack. I got the soundtrack on vinyl, Tangerine Dream. Good soundtrack. Good movie. Yeah, I love it. And your thoughts on Jim Belushi? Like Matt said, I'm kind of ambivalent to the guy. Uh, He's fine in that movie, I guess. But everything else I've seen him in, there's nothing really... I like about him, although he, I guess he's like a big uh, pot grower now. He's got like a big uh, marijuana empire, so good for him. All right, yeah, hey, I like that. Yeah, that's cool. I, th- I think my point last week was just I don't, I, I don't get the hate. I mean, he's just doing his thing. Jim Belushi's not hurting nobody. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple things at play. One, you know, people love his brother so much, so obviously there's going to be that negative comparison but also i mean he did do a lot of dumb shit like just bad movies and that according to jim tv show was fucking garbage and like i don't know every time i hear about him on stage at the fucking house of blues like playing harmonica i just want to puke in my hat (laughs) but wouldn't we all accept you know a, a shitty sitcom if it were offered to us or a gig at the house of blues like you know he's just doing What's offered to him? Sure, I guess. I mean, yeah, I don't have any ill will towards the guy. 
but yeah. I don't love him either. I think That's he's fair. fine. Like he, he never uh, bugged me as a kid by doing an annoying Joe Cocker impression. So like I'm, I maybe he's actually my favorite <laughs> Belushi. <laughs> I like him more. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to get into Thief. It's a movie I like a great deal too, and we'll we'll talk about it next next week. Um, yeah, they were having that uh, Criterion fifty percent off sale at Barnes and Noble. I was actually up there mm-hmm. this weekend physically in the store perusing the, the movies and uh i almost bought thief i was this close i should have bought it I, but I, instead I, you I stole passed. it instead i slipped it in my trousers <laughs> no i i was playing a conservative i only picked up one one film oh yeah well, actually two films because it's you get I, I picked up shaft and it also has shaft's big score on that bad boy oh no shaft in africa no, which I was surprised. I don't know if they just don't have the rights to it or what. Because I know Warner Archive has put out a Shaft in Africa Blu-ray. So I don't know why it's not included on the on the uh, Criterion Blu-ray. Because I, I assume they're all owned by Warner Brothers. So if they license those two, why not get the third? Maybe they're waiting for uh, you know Shaft Amongst the Jews to come out and they can package those two together. <laughs> You found a way to get there. I, I was searching my brain. How can I get the shaft among the Jews? I had a couple avenues, but you got there. All right. Well, all that's right. all the voicemails. That's all. all right. That's all. Okay, wow. Well, well, thank you, Kyle and Matt, for calling in. If you'd like to be like Kyle and Matt, give us a call on the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. If you call around the time you're hearing this, you'll probably end up on the old Junk Food Supper. But if you give it a couple weeks... You might end up on junk food dinner. You never know. It's the game you play, but uh, call and say hi. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, yeah. All right. That being said, let's get into a little bit of what we like to call nerd news. From the global resources of junk food dinner worldwide, it's time for nerd news. Uh, first piece of nerd news that I have. It's been a big, big week for Godzilla fans like myself. Uh, first, Pluto TV announced that they're having they've added a 24-hour Godzilla channel uh, to their line of programming. If you're not familiar with Pluto TV, it is a free streaming service that kind of simulates like cable television with multiple channels and very specific channels. Some channels just dedicated to one show. Like there's a mystery science theater channel. There's like, uh, I don't know, like a show dedicated to nothing but old family feud and prices, right? Episodes, a lot of cool stuff on there. Um, And it's, again, it's free. I mean, obviously there's commercial breaks and stuff like that, Uh, but they added this uh, full Godzilla channel, which uh, I think if I read correctly, they have the rights to pretty much all the Japanese Godzilla movies, so they're churning those out, and I think they're also throwing some stuff in, like the old animated Godzilla series from Hanna-Barbera, some of these Godzilla Island shows from the 90s. So it's great. And so, you know, in, if, if you ever want to watch Godzilla, you can, you know, just throw that on, hop right in the middle of, you know, Mecha Godzilla or, uh, you know, Destroy All Monsters, whatever they're playing at the time. So that's a lot of fun. Glad that that's out there. Uh, but even bigger news, Toho. This week, I think just today or the other day, has announced that they uh, the title for their next Godzilla movie. This is going to be the uh, direct follow-up to Shin Godzilla, of course, not counting 
This is not counting the legendary U.S. Godzilla movies that have come out since then. This is, you know, the real shit, the Japanese Godzilla stuff. And it is going to be called Godzilla Minus One. I'm not thrilled about that title, but that's what they're going with. Um, it's going to debut in Japan on November 3rd of this year. And we'll get a U.S. release on December 1st. Uh, so that'll be cool. I'm guessing probably going to be a limited release, maybe even like a Fathom event kind of situation. That's how Shin Godzilla was, at least, <clears throat> when that came out uh, several years back. Uh, but they also dropped a teaser trailer for Godzilla Minus One. Uh, looks intriguing. I like the look of it. I mean, if it's kind of along the same lines as... Um, uh, you know, Shin Godzilla in terms of kind of style that you can kind of expect the same thing, but new Japanese Godzilla, always a welcome thing in my book. But what do you guys think? Are you interested and will you be checking out Godzilla minus one on December 1st? I am pretty hyped and, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure that I will be in the theaters in December to see this. Um, pretty thrilled that it's that kind of a quick turnaround, you know, we don't have to wait too long, just, you know, about a month in between the J Japan and the U S release. And yeah, the, the teaser trailer, there, there's not a whole lot in it, but what is there looked pretty good so far from like the, you know, 15 seconds of footage or whatever. But, um, I, you know, I, I liked Shin Godzilla. I didn't, didn't maybe love it as much as some other people, but you know, more Toho Godzilla in the world can only be a good thing. Yeah, this will be the 30th live-action Toho Godzilla film, if you can believe that. Wow. Yeah, and this is also going to coincide with Godzilla's 69th anniversary, so that's nice. Very nice. Ba-ba-boom. <laughs> um, I love Shin Godzilla. I think it's by far my favorite Godzilla movie. Um, well, that's just a crazy statement. I mean, it's good, but your favorite Godzilla movie? Well, I've I've only seen like ten Godzillas, so it's not like I've seen them all. So, I mean, I've got okay. a lot left to to go, but it's definitely my favorite. I don't know. I I think it's great. It's like spooky, you know. I don't know. It's, you know, it's uh, I think it's wonderful. I think it's a wonderful film. Well, I think Pluto TV's got your back if you need to, you know, ramp up yeah, on more up. Godzillas. Yeah. I do need to bone up. I need to watch all the rest of these Godzillas. So, uh, so I will do that. I yeah. I pledge to watch all of them Very nice. at some point. But, well, yeah, um, well, yeah, this is so great. Like, it's if you want to find me up. December first, I'll be in the theater. I will checking out Godzilla minus um, one. Yeah, it's great. That you this could is be my plus so one. soon here in America because, um, as like an Evangelion man, usually like those movies come out in Japan and then it's like seven years later they get released in America, um, or at least the first few anyway. So like. And then I think Shin Godzilla, we waited for a while. Yeah, so like, um, yeah, it's great that this is coming out so quick. Uh, I got some some nerd news as well. Um, it turns out Greta Gerwig, famed director of the upcoming Barbie movie, which is going to be the number one movie of 2023. Uh, her next project, according to The New Yorker, who broke the story, although it has not been confirmed by Greta Gerwig or Netflix, is that Greta Gerwig's going to be doing The Chronicles of Narnia for Netflix. Um, oh. <laughs> which sounds like a bummer, because she's a very exciting director who's done very good stuff. So I'm very upset that she's going to do what is quite possibly the worst saga in literature. Um, 
So I don't know. For, a for little... potentially the, the worst streamer in the game. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. Netflix is, is known for just producing junk all day long. Yeah. They've got a very low uh, percentage of good things that they produce in house. So uh, very, very upsetting, very disappointing. Hopefully this doesn't actually exist. Uh, I don't know. You guys going to watch this or you guys excited? You guys I'm too old the, for this. <laughs> you guys read the Narnias before? I, I read a couple of them when I was very young and, you know, they were fun adventure stories for like a 10 year old boy to be reading. But um, I never saw that movie that they made. It looked kind of bad. And this will probably be pretty bad too. Yeah. I remember reading it in grade school and, I think after we wa- read it, they made us watch like that BBC version. Do you remember that? That yeah, was from like I, the eighties. Yeah, I did watch that. And yeah, that that was garbage. Yeah, I don't love these uh, Narnias either. So, and I didn't see the the two thousands one. So, yeah, I, I have got no interest in this. But I like Greta Gerwig, and I'm excited for Barbie. Uh, but I'm not gonna. I don't know unless it's some kind of crazy take on. You know, who knows? Maybe it'll be like this crazy take on Chronicles of Narnia like she did with Barbie. Maybe it'll be a, a deconstructionist uh, version of Narnia. Who knows? That could be. Do we know? It, is it going to be The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Or is it some kind of, you know, cross-book thing? Or do we know? Uh, I. It seems like they want to do them all. I mean, it being Netflix and wanting as much content as possible, I would imagine that they're going to start with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and then make their way through all of them. Although, that last time that they made these into big-budget movies, I think they only got to, like, part three before people stopped going and they had to quit. So, I guess we'll see. I like that witch. (laughs) That's, That's why you asked the question, just to play that drum? It's the only reason. In fact, I didn't even listen to the response. I, I was too busy intently looking at my drop board. Well, but my response included a, a very weighty theory about how meditation and Twin Peaks are connected. So you missed out I've on done that. done it again. again. I'm, I'm completely <laughs> tuned out. Well, well, I, I got a, a, well, it's not even really news. I got a list of Blu-rays here that I just wanted to shout out as having, you know, releases in July that I thought were worth mentioning i guess um so let me just shout out some blu-rays that are coming out this month july 11th uh cleopatra films is going to be putting out the shin ultraman blu-ray we just mentioned this new godzilla and i think we might have even mentioned shin ultraman the blu-ray is coming out guys finally a chance to see it I, I haven't seen it i would like to see it i think you guys are in the same boat right yeah, yeah. i didn't get a chance to catch the fathom event when they screened it here in the u.s so yeah now that's out on blu-ray i'll check that out Mm-hmm. Very nice. July 18th, the Found Footage Festival is putting out a Blu-ray of their Chop and Steel documentary, which, same thing, I have not seen. Uh, excited to see. Love those Found Footage Festival guys and that whole story about them being sued by like these crazy news organizations over their you know, harmless, goofy little pranks uh, is a crazy story. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that documentary. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I, I know a lot about that only just because I've seen the Found Footage Festival guys multiple times throughout that the, their whole trials and tribulations. And uh, in each one of their shows in the last five or so years that they've done, probably even more, 
they would bring it up, you know, and give us updates on the way, play little clips from the chop and steal stuff. And then, you know, online on their website, they've been, you know, they got uh, as part of being sued, they got the footage of their deposition, which is hilarious. You can watch them being deposed and asked very hilarious questions in a very serious manner about, you know, chop and steal and, and the validity of of these uh, news appearances. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see this documentary as well. Uh, I think it's a very interesting story. And I love those found footage, guys. So, yeah, I'll definitely check this out. Yeah, I like those guys, too. Yeah, this sounds fun. Well, do you like British kaijus? Because if so, you might like that Vinegar Syndrome is putting out a 4K release of Gorgo on July 25th. Yeah, I saw that. That's cool. I might pick that up. Um, it Gorgo's a fun one. And Parker, don't let the Britishness get to you. Um, I think Gorgo's a lot of fun. I actually saw that on the big screen a couple years ago as part of the... Uh, um, Monster Bash uh, film festival that they do up in Canton, Ohio every year and the beautiful Palace Theater. I saw that sitting in the balcony of the old palace and had a, a rollicking good time watching Gorgo destro- destroy London. So, uh, Parker, like I said, don't let the Britishness get to you. I think it's well worth your time. Well, you mentioned him destroying London, so this does sound pretty much up my alley. At first, I was, <laughs> yeah. I was on the fence, but if he destroys London, I'm in. Yeah, I, I think I think that is in fact in store for you. So uh, look forward to that. Uh, Agfa and Vinegar Syndrome are putting out a Blu-ray of Video Diary of a Lost Girl, a movie that we reviewed on the show about ten thousand years ago. So it's cool that uh, that's coming out. Um, Eighty Eight Films is putting out a nineteen ninety Cat Three movie called Magic Cop, starring Ching Ying Lam. Uh, that's pretty fun. Discotech is putting out a terrifying girls high school disc yeah. uh, for the movie Animal Classmates from that series, uh, which is a movie that I have not seen, but I've seen some other stuff from that series. And uh, it's fun if you like pinky violence kind of stuff. And then finally, um, that adjust your tracking VHS collecting documentaries is also getting a Blu-ray release. So uh, a lot of stuff now, that we've either reviewed or, or at least mentioned on the show is, is finally hidden blue blu-ray i remember there was like two competing vhs collector documentaries that came out around the same time is this a gesture tracking the one that does or does not feature our fallen brother mark fredo in it oh i would think that he must be in this one this is the one that has you know horror boobs mad and it's the one that dan kinnam made so yeah i think that's the one with fredo in it fredo's got to be in this he's in there shopping for vhs tapes like a you know, he's all over the place. He was in that uh <laughs> he was in that episode of um oh, what was that show on HBO? Yeah. Sopranos. <laughs> well, okay. Was no. he in an episode of I Think You Should Leave? No, not I Think You Should no. Leave. It's the the show that Nathan Fielder produces that I forget the yeah. name of. Like how how to with John something something something. Something oh, like that. John Benjamin? Not John no. Benjamin. Anyway, forget it. Forget it. He made a brief appearance on some show on HBO. How to with John Wilson. There it is. It's a good show. Very funny show. Yeah, I liked it. Not a a bad name. Not a memorable name. No, not at all. His his actual name and the name of the show. Very forgettable. (laughs) Yeah. Well, cool. Yeah. Those uh, sounds like a hot month for Blu-rays. I'll definitely be checking at least some of those out. Uh, So better better start saving those pennies now for those hot blues. 
Yeah. Blues yeah, you can use. This was just a small sampling, to be honest. There's actually quite yeah. a few good good looking releases this month. Yeah, after hours, Criterion Collection comes out. Oh yeah. Good stuff. All right. Well, while we uh, check our bank account to see how many Blu-rays we can acquire this month, uh, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to get into our first feature film of the evening. And that is Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959, starring everyone's favorite, Pat Boone. So stick around.
rose and went where no human being had ever set foot, alone. Went into the interior of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, this is James Mason. Come along with Pat Boone and me, Arlene Dahl, Diane Baker, and Gertrude the Duck, and discover sights and sounds and wonders no living man has ever witnessed before, filmed in the incomparable magic of CinemaScope. We'll take our leave of civilization on the bleak, barren wastes of Iceland, peer in awe at the bottomless crater of an uncharted volcano, make the perilous descent into the unknown. You'll pioneer with us through countless miles of trackless labyrinths, discover huge subterranean caverns never beheld by human eye, become lost in the weird underground maze. You'll find yourself engulfed in grotesque, petrified jungles, marvel at the fantastically beautiful quartz grotto, tumble into cascading salt beds, escape from hissing steam caves, Behold the staggering underground ocean. You'll encounter breathtaking dangers beyond belief here at the center of the earth. Stop. They are warning. You'll never find your companions or your way out. You need me as much as I need you. Stop and come back. to Junk Food Dinner, the first movie on the show tonight. It's going to be Journey to the Center of the Earth from 1959, uh, based, of course, on Jules Verne's 1864 novel. And this version was directed by a guy named Henry Levin, uh, who directed over 50 features between the early 1940s and the late 1970s. But I think this is probably the thing that he's most remembered for these days. And I know that this is maybe among the most grandpa picks I could have made in terms of a movie selection this week, but I'm I'm hoping you guys will be willing to indulge me because I've personally been kind of mildly obsessed with, with this story since I was a kid. You know, I read the book at a young age and really enjoyed it. Um, You know, around that age that you're reading things like treasure Island and all the classics, but this one really stuck out as, as one that I loved. Uh, But what I especially loved was the concept album that Rick Wakeman made in 1974 called Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, which retells the story um, through a combination of narration and blistering prog rock keyboard solos. Uh, And for my whole life, I've, I've never been able to understand why that isn't like the most popular rock record of the 1970s. Uh, I just think it's a great record. Um, Anyhow, uh, I was curious what the first film version of the story would be, and I was surprised to find out that this is apparently the first time they made it into a movie. 
Um, I, you know, I would have figured that they would have done this back in the 1920s or something, this story being so old, but took until 59 to get around to it. Um, it looks like they've made at least 13 adaptations of this story uh, into film over the years. So uh, it's pretty incredible that it all started here, I guess. Um, the, you know, the other thing that surprised me was in my quote unquote research, which is a little technique that I learned from Parker Bowman uh, over on the junk food suckers. Uh-huh. <laughs> I learned that, um, that subterranean fiction was already kind of like a, like a popular genre of fiction at the time, you know, Jules Verne certainly didn't invent it. And in fact, you know, there were a number of, of novels in the 17 and 1800s uh, that had similar kind of plot lines where like scientists were going underground trying to find the center of the earth. But uh, for, you know, whatever reason, he was able to encapsulate it in a way that connected with audiences, I guess. And anyhow, this movie tells that classic story, uh, you know, the one that you've probably either, either read or, or seen some of, you know, one of these adaptations. Um, in this version, James Mason plays Sir Oliver Lindenbrook, who is a Scottish science professor who hears about a cave in Iceland uh, that is supposed to be a passageway to the center of the earth. And so he heads off on a journey to go see that center of the earth. And uh, along the way, he'll be joined by his trusty student, Alec, played by Christian crooner Pat Boone, uh, plus a local Icelandic tour guide, and his amazing pet goose as well, um, as well as the widow of one of James Mason's scientific rivals, uh, who uh, she gets roped into this when her husband dies. Eventually, a third science adventurer dude shows up to throw some wrenches into the mix. And that's the basic idea, you know, but with it being a journey, uh, there are moments of thrills as well. At least eventually there are, because the early goings in this movie are pretty boring. Uh, in fact, I, I had to keep telling my wife throughout the first 30 minutes or so of this that, don't worry, they will be going underground eventually. Uh, which, by the way, when they finally get to the cave, and the cave is looking really cool, and, and they're getting in there, and I'm excited for some subterranean adventures, they do a really fucked up thing, which is they immediately cut away to like a real boring ass scene that's happening back in Scotland, you know, that's exactly zero feet below sea level. Uh, thankfully they don't do that again until the very end of the movie. And, and they do keep us in that cave um, from then on, which is good because caves are where we can have these kind of Indiana Jones running away from Boulder type scenes. Uh, you can't really do that on the streets of Scotland. Um. Oh, also, there are some surprise musical numbers. I, I should m- make that clear uh, that Pat Boone does his patented croon in this for some reason. Uh, that was that, at at Pat Boone's request, I read, that that was one of the main reasons he did this movie was because they allowed him to shoehorn some of his dumbass songs into it. <laughs> in fact, he wanted to do more. He, I think he had a theme song that was supposed to play over the credits, but they're like, come on, Boone, enough is enough, and they cut that. <laughs> Yeah, I was so worried when he started singing that this was going to be a musical. I was like, so, so worried. I got, I almost had a panic attack. I know you could only imagine if, if they had tried to just fill this like from top to bottom with Pat Boone songs. Thankfully it's, it's just a couple. It's like maybe two and a half or something, but still kind of strange that they're even in this. Um, and this story overall, you know, the original story, I've always found to be a little strange. I mean, despite the fact that I do love the story, 
I think maybe the fascinating thing about it for me is that like, it, it seems like it's just inherently a suicide mission, right? Like assuming that you could even walk far enough down into the earth to get to the center and assuming that lava is not going to melt you to death or anything, like how would you ever expect to have enough energy to then walk all the way back up out of the earth? That's going to take like so much more effort. Um, you would, I think just have to expect that you are going to die down there, which kind of makes this movie and, and this story interesting to me, you know, and then, you know, you got to assume that all these people know that they're on some kind of a suicide mission. Um, yeah. Or they anticipate that there's just going to be a, a helpful elevator at the very end. Yeah. will help them yeah. get right back up. It could be that they expected the unexpected deus machina, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, whatever the case is, um, there are some thrills in this. I, I, you know, I guess the thrills mostly come in two varieties. Firstly, you know, the thrill of seeing these cool cave sets that they built. Uh, if you love fake rocks, you know, this movie is like an extended trip on the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. Um, just tons of cool fake rocks from top to bottom. Uh, there's a great set where they first discover water and it's all these like crystals all over the walls. I thought that looked really cool. And then they got that set later on where it's all these giant mushrooms, like you're in some kind of Super Mario land or something. Um, and then some of the stuff that looks more legit is legit because in fact they filmed it in uh, Carlsbad caverns, you know, at least stretches of it are, are filmed down there uh, in the real Carls- Carlsbad caverns. So cool to see that in 1959 as well. And then the second kind of thrill in this is the thrill of seeing fake fins be glued to real life iguanas who are turned from, you know, tiny little lizards into huge dinosaurs through the magic of blue screens. You know, these, these big uh, lizard creatures turn out to be a, a real menace to our adventurers there under the earth. So uh, those are cool. I mean, mostly they're cool because you get this really insanely great, although very brief inside the mouth POV shot, which is one of my favorite things in movies. And to get one that is coming from inside the, inside the mouth of a giant dragon lizard, I think is even better. Um, and beyond that, you know, you got a cool score by Bernard Herrmann, um, some very impressive, like rumbling bass in the opening song that plays over the credits, but uh, just from top to bottom, great stuff from Herman, you know, as always. And I guess this movie is maybe a little bit saucy for 1959, at least in terms of people getting pro- progressively more naked through the movie, you know, as they're going further and further underground, things are getting steamier, they're starting to disrobe. And, you know, that's kind of nice, I, I guess. Um, there are also some some weird, like, only in the 1950s sorts of moments in this. Like, first and foremost, I, I think they probably did kill some iguanas making this, I'm sad to say. Um, so oh, be advised on that. Yeah, Most right? I mean, yeah. They, they stab a couple right in the heart, and then uh, they bury one with lava. Yeah, they just, they drown a few, and then... I mean, I would imagine just they probably stapled those fins on them to begin with. So probably, you know, these guys mm-hmm. were doomed to, to die anyways. They were probably slowly bleeding out while they filmed this. But, you know, that that's how they made movies in the 50s. Uh, this is also a movie where the woman of the group wears full-blown makeup, pearl earrings, you know, has fancy pajamas and all this uh, on this 
very harrowing scientific adventure. So that's kind of strange. Um, also, Pat Boone in this claims that the Chinese eat eggs that are 400 years old. And he makes this claim like real casually as if that were true at all. And that's kind of a weird thing. Um, but this movie is, you know, full of those kinds of scientific facts from yesteryear. And, and I think that's part of its charm. Uh, so overall, you know, I think your mileage with this movie is probably just going to depend on how much of a grandpa you are. But if you love movies like the time machine from 1960, and maybe you thought the Morlocks were too scary and you wanted something with a little bit less thrills, maybe you wanted to replace the Morlocks with Gertrude, the goose. Well, this is a movie that you might love. Um, I liked it, you know, a a good deal. I'm not going to say that I was over the moon for it. I don't think it's the most thrilling thing ever made, but it's, kind of a chill grandpa sci-fi adventure type movie. Uh, the current HD presentation looks really nice. So there's probably never been a better time to, to check this out. And I would recommend that you do that if, you know, if you're into this kind of grandpa stuff, but what about you guys? Did you guys enjoy this journey to the center of the earth? Well, I am into this grandpa stuff. Uh, you mentioned the time machine, which I did love. And, you know, it seems like there was a lot of, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne kind of adaptations coming out around this time. And I've always kind of leaned towards more of the H.G. Wells stuff, you know, with the time travel and the aliens and stuff. Uh, The Jules Verne, didn't he also do 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so he's kind of more the natural exploration of the natural world kind of stuff. Uh, which doesn't, I mean, that there's obviously sci-fi elements to this, but H.G. Wells always just seemed a little bit more sci-fi to me than Jules Verne. I know Jules Verne is technically sci-fi, and but I, I just think on the sci-fi scale, H.G. Wells is just a little more sci-fi to me. And so I always kind of lean towards him. Uh, so I had actually never seen this Journey to the Center of the Earth. In fact, I, I don't think I've ever seen any version of Journey to the Center oh, of really? the Earth. Oh, really? Yeah, I haven't seen the Brendan Fraser one. I haven't seen uh, any other of the adaptations. So... I think the guy that directed Pieces, the Spanish dude, I think he yeah. made one. There, really? There's a bunch, though, yeah. Well, I know that, well, I have seen Alien out in L.A., which is very loosely based on Journey to the Center of the Earth. So I guess that might count. Um, but yeah, so I was I was intrigued to see this. I love the grandpa stuff. I love the old sci-fi. Um, I love kind of this era of of kind of big budget Hollywood stuff. Cause I mean, obviously the Disney 20,000 leagues under the sea had been a big hit a couple years before this. And I think they were really trying to capitalize on that. Um, and I think even, um, uh, James Mason was in, uh, that 20,000 leagues under the sea. So they, uh, you know, they were, they were, they knew what they were doing, but Pat Boone, not a welcome presence anywhere in my life. Um, I mean, I don't know. He seems like an affable enough guy, but fuck that dude just in general. Never liked his music, never liked him as a person. Uh, just seems like a dork. And he's a dork in this. And he's playing, you know, some kilt-wearing Scottish scientist. And like you said, nothing, and you're being very generous by saying in the ha- first half hour, nothing happens in the first hour of this movie. I clocked it. Not a fucking thing. Uh, they could have. Re- this is a two-hour-plus movie. They could have taken the first hour of it and condensed it into fucking fifteen minutes, 
because it's all just a bunch of bullshit padding leading up to the, you know, titular journey to the center of the earth. It's Pat Boone trying to, you know, get with uh, James Mason's daughter or niece, niece or whomever. Think, yeah. yeah. Which, uh, that stuff. I mean, all this weird romance stuff never even really pays off and it just doesn't factor into the runtime of the movie. Like once no. they get to the cave, like it's all irrelevant. So yeah, it's very weird that that stuff's in there. Yeah. I don't get why that's in there. You get, uh, James Mason yelling at a lot, calling a lot of people like, uh, yelling at a lot of women in a very, and that I think kind of continues throughout the movie when the wife of that, uh, rival scientist comes along for the ride. He's, he's very, uh, chauvinistic, uh, and very mean to her. And that's, that's also kind of a bummer. I mean, obviously I know that was the thing at the time and that was how the character was written and stuff, but, uh, that also kind of turned me off to all these pieces of shit in this film. Also, um, he was a bit racist towards ice Icelanders. Sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 1959. I mean, what do you expect? Yeah. We, we all guess. hated the Icelanders back then. <laughs> uh, and then even like when they start their descent down, they like, like fall into that false trap with all the uh, feathers. And then they have that stupid scene where they're doing Morse code with a duck. And I was like, God damn it. Just get to the fucking center of the earth already. Let's get this fucking show on the road. Uh, So the first hour was maddening to me. I, I hated this movie with every fiber of my being for that first hour. Uh, But when they finally get to the center of the earth, and we get a lot of those forced perspective lizards, uh, you know, giant lizards. And like you said, the um, the Indiana Jones style running from giant rolling boulders and uh, all that good stuff. That's all fun and fine and dandy. Unfortunately, um, and, and like you said, the, the, the cave and like the stalactites and all the like false cave sets and the real cave sets the giant mushrooms, like anything like special effects or set piece driven is great in this. I love all that. But unfortunately you could kind of condense that all down to like a, I don't know, 15 minute YouTube video. And I think you could get the best of this movie and cut out, you know, save yourself an hour and 45 minutes of your time because yeah, there is a lot of horse shit in this fucking Pat Boone's musical numbers for goddamn, you know, God knows how long. So there's a lot of crap in this. Uh, but the stuff that's good, like I said, anything special effects or set driven uh, is a lot of fun. So it, it's it's a very mixed bag for me. There's unfortunately, I think, more chaff than wheat in this, uh, this bad boy. But uh, I think the stuff that's in there uh, is a lot of fun if you're willing to sit through some crap to get to it. Oh boy! I mean, if, if you didn't love this movie, I feel like I, I got no chance with Bowman. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's bad. It's pretty bad. Pretty bad situation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I was excited to see this because I I kind of like Jules Verne. Like I went through a, kind of a phase as a young man where I was like sort of super into all this like Victorian like adventure literature and. Um, I never read can, this one. You, but it, you can say it during your steampunk phase. <laughs> it was when I used to wear goggles a lot and top hats. Um, and yeah, I read uh, 20,000 Leagues, but I I never read this. Um, 
So I was excited to see about it. Um, and I mean, just immediately you're hit with like the worst green screen, the worst use of like green screen or like rear projection or whatever it is that they used in ever. Like it opens up and like everybody's walking around downtown Scotland and having a blast. And like, there's a guy with the fuzzy hats and the bagpipes walking by. And then Pat Boone is downtown, but then it cuts to a scene of him or a shot of him in front of just like a backdrop. I don't know. It looks like green screen or maybe it's like a painting, but it's like a backdrop of like a, a bookstore in the background. Um, as he like reads the paper, but it's like, why would they do this? Like he, they just seconds ago, they had a shot of him walking around a real actual like location. Like why couldn't they just get whatever the shot is supposed to be while they were in front of an actual thing instead of just a fake backdrop that looks really, really bad. So that upset me greatly. Um, and then, yeah, it's very boring for a very long time. There's a lot of songs, which uh, I don't think was in Jules Verne's original. I don't think he included songs. So that was upsetting. Um, then we the once they finally get underground, like you said, like an hour into this fucking thing, um, they do the Indiana Jones ball, ball drop, like you guys mentioned, which I thought was funny because I had just watched uh, the Yokai War where they make a joke about movies always having those. And so that was funny to me. Um, there's a guy, once they get down there, uh, you know, and they're like just kind of looking at shit and stuff. Like a guy finds a big pile of white powder and then he picks it up with his two hands and he takes a big bite of it. And then he goes, "Ugh, salt. So like, yeah. What, what was the other option? What on earth could it have been if not for salt here yeah. in a mine, in a salt mine? He was hoping for some of that naturally occurring, you know, white sugar that you find underground, right? I mean, <laughs> what else would you even confuse it with? I don't know. Why would he just eat big handfuls of it and then be upset? Um, like you said, they torture a lot of lizards. And the first scene where the big lizards show up, um, they're like on the beach. And then one of the guys is like, hey, you know, like can that thing swim? You know, we should just go into the water. And I think it's Pat Boone. He's like, no, of course it can't swim. Like why, like why would he think that? Cause lizards can swim. And like, wh- why would he even assume that? Like, di- I mean, is he a dinosaur expert? Like, why would you think that this guy can't swim? Well, and also swimming is not a factor when you're like a hundred feet tall. And we're talking about water. That's like two feet deep. Like his feet <laughs> yeah. didn't even get wet going in there. <laughs> True. It's not. Yeah. Very bad scientists. The, despite the fact that this like attempts to, to tell you that this is like a thrilling action adventure. Um, no matter where they go, they just lock the camera down and, and shoot it in a wide shot, shoot the scene in a wide shot. And then people just kind of talk like no matter where they go, it's a play essentially. So even if you've got like the greatest sets in the world, you got these big mushrooms and you got stalactites and stalagmites and piles of salt everywhere. It's still just like a play where these guys are standing and talking and the camera doesn't move. So no matter, no matter what, it's boring. 
Um, I think the only time that the camera does move is like it pans left one time. Like we see like a, a lizard's tail, you know, that like everybody else can't see. And so like the camera pans left to show us that and then it pans back right. And I think that's like the only time in this entire movie that the camera moves. Um, but I did like that lizard tail that they step over near the end when they find the elevator. Uh, it was painted well. And it like has this glowing effect that I like. Um, but then they murder that that lizard. Like they just kill that guy um, by burying him in fake lava. So that's sad. RIP to that lizard. Um, and then, yeah, I don't really understand like the point of why they would need to get down here. I mean, I guess they're scientists and adventurers and that's like kind of what the deal was back in these days. Like you would just go to a place and adventure around and just prove, you know, as a scientist, you would just be like, yeah, we did this. That's what scientists do. Um, you know, we well, he does get that big speech. He does get that speech at the end where he says, you know, without proof, I can't make the claim that I've been there. Yeah, I actually did like that. I thought that was interesting. That was a fun thing. Um, but, but yeah, like, so they kind of go on this pointless trek and then, and then they just find a magical uh, elevator that takes them right back up to the top. So no harm, no foul. You would think that maybe they could have like gone down in that big hole. You know, if there's like a big hole in a volcano that just goes all the way down to the center of the earth, like maybe just take that down and yeah, you know, rappel down on some ropes or something. Yeah, you wouldn't even have to fight the lizards or eat the salt or anything like that. Almost drown, nothing like that. Um, you'd think that'd be easy to find, but but they didn't do it. So, um, so yeah. And then this the movie ends with like another song about like how cool geology is. Like everybody does like a hip hip hooray. Like geology is super cool, um, which is like very old timey. I bet like if you were in like a history class or something back in like the 1850s, you probably had to sing that song. Um, but yeah, this is tremendously boring. Just wretched, wretchedly boring. So I, I did not care for it. Well, do you guys have any thoughts on the Rick Wakeman record of the same name? No, never heard of it. I do like the Amboy Duke song, Journey to the Center of Your Mind. Okay. Oh, yeah. You is that the one that the Ramones did? That they did. Yeah, hell yeah. Well, check out the Rick Wakeman record. I, I think you'll like it. It's uh you know, he, he was the keyboardist for Yes. So, you know, if you oh, like I know who of, Wakeman is. If you like that kind of prog rock, <laughs> it's, it's a really good record. You've insulted Kevin. Of course he knows he, who Wakeman is. Sorry, man. Don't get defensive. I mean, you know, just. In fact, I would, just today, because it is 7 Eleven <laughs> Slurpee Day, yeah. I was looking up uh, old 1970s Slurpee cups, and there was a whole line of like, rock and roll artists that got Slurpee Cups. Rick Wakeman had his own Slurpee Cup, along with like Edgar Winner and Grand Funk Railroad and stuff. So. Well, you, you would have thought the combination of, you know, seeing that and me picking this movie this might have inspired you to, you know, open up Spotify, check out this great record, but, but I guess no. No. Well, it's really good. Check it out. Um, and I'll be checking out any future appearances of Gertrude the Goose in cinema because I think she was maybe my favorite character in this. Uh, a movie that I agree with you guys is kind of boring. But to be honest, I was in the mood for a boring grandpa movie when I watched this, and it fit the bill just fine. So 
Uh, I, you know, I think if that's what you're looking for, you'll, you'll find it here. But we will be taking a quick break, and then we're going to come back to talk about Perdita Durango from 1997. So stick around.
Perdita Durango. She's as dangerous as he is. Maybe more. Go ahead, shoot! We're talking about a wild animal grabbing you and ripping you apart. I've never met anybody like you. I know. Oh! One of you will die. Why not only one? Who votes for Dwayne? I'm sorry, Dwayne. Rosie Perez. James Gandolfini from The Sopranos. Screamin' Jay Hawkins. And introducing Javier Bardem. Dance with the Devil. Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner. The next movie we're going to be taking a look at on the episode this evening is Perdita Durango from 1997, also known under the home video title in the United States as Dance with the Devil, but has since been reissued on Blu-ray under its original title, Perdita Durango from the fine folks at Severn Pictures. This is the third film directed by a director who's quickly become one of my favorites here on the show, uh, and that is Alex de la Iglesia. Uh, if you've listened to the show, we've covered a couple of his films previous. We've done the first two films that he did, uh, Action Mutante or Mutant Action from 1993, uh, The Day of the Beast from 1995, uh, and those two films, uh, he's a Spanish uh, director, and those two films were shot in Spain, in Spanish, with Spanish actors. Uh, but in 1997, he uh, was offered the director uh, role for uh, Perdita Durango. Uh, and he did not write this. This was based on a novel by Barry Gifford in 1992 called 50 Degrees and Raining, the story of Perdita Durango. And this was a a Spain-U.S.-Mexico co-production, and it was filmed here in the United States as well as Mexico. So a bit of a departure for Alex de la Iglesia, who had, up until this point, really only worked in Spain. Um, By the way, did, did we also review Witching and Bitching? Or, or we did, did yes. See that? Okay, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. We and that's did. him yeah. as well. Okay. So that, yes, so that would, this will be our, the fourth movie that we've done by him. Witching and Bitching came out several years later in 2013. Um I would also really like to do his movie, The Last Circus, at some point. I really like that movie a lot, too. Uh, but Perdita Durango, like I said, I had um, I had not seen this uh, until it just got released by Severn here on Blu-ray. Uh, even though it did get released on home video in the United States as uh, Dance with the Devil, I just kind of passed me by, and I think it passed by a lot of people. Um, but I think it's definitely worth revisiting. So uh, just kind of a breakdown of this. So this stars Rosie Perez, who I think we all know from uh, films like White Men Can't Jump uh, and things like that. Uh, well, she, as as a fly girl on In yeah. Living Color, right? I don't know. I think you're thinking of Jennifer Lopez. Um, I think Rosie Perez was a fly girl. I don't think so. Um, Isn't there she, that like famous compilation of Rosie Perez as a fly girl? Like, or am I thinking of her on the grind or something where she's just dancing like nuts? She danced at the beginning of do the right thing. She may have also been a fly girl or you may just be thinking about do the right thing. 
Oh, she was the chore- choreographer for the Fly Girls, as a matter of fact. So, yeah, she was a Fly Girl. All right. Anyways. Uh, didn't want that to be to be missed, her Fly Girl lineage. <laughs> anyway, uh, Rosie Perez plays the titular Perdita Durango, uh, a very kind of sassy and saucy woman who uh, has just traveled across the Mexican border uh, to scatter the ashes of her recently deceased sister uh, who has passed away in a very tragic way. Her husband uh, killed her and their two daughters uh, right before killing himself in their trailer park. And she's there to scatter the ashes. Meanwhile, in the background, we see a couple guys digging up a grave at the site where she is spreading these ashes uh, we don't know who these this person is yet, but we quickly find out that it is none other than Javier, Javier Bardem, uh, playing a character named Romeo uh, Dolorosa, and he is sporting uh, a contender for the Bozo Haircut Hall of Fame. Uh, he's got this really terrible lo- haircut that's like long hair with like really shittily cut bangs, and then to make matters even worse, it's like shaved on the sides. He's got a really bad mustache. I don't know what the fuck they were thinking with this uh, <laughs> this hair choice for him. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, he uh, sees Rosie Perez uh, on the American side of the border after they have crossed back over. And he is immediately smitten with her. And he tries to kind of pick up on her. And she's not really having it. She's been hit on, it seems like, many times. In the beginning of the film, we see her get hit on by some uh, goofy middle-aged businessman who she quickly shuts down. And uh, it seems like Javier Bardem is going to face the same kind of rejection. Only there's something about him that she does find a little bit, a little bit charming. So she ends up uh, kind of going back with him and she finds out that he is hiding a dead body in his car. Uh, he uses a little bit of, uh, his Mexican mysticism to pull like a force, like the force from star Wars move on the, uh, border guards and, uh, they get through the border. Uh, okay. Um, she finds out that Javier, Javier Bardem's, uh, mysticism, uh, doesn't just extend to, you know, uh, duping border guards, but he is a full on kind of shaman, uh, that practices Santeria, much like that oh. sublime song. He's got a crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, but he performs the, this like Santeria, uh, not only, uh, just in private, but to a whole crowd of people that come to visit his little compound that he has, uh, uh, also who's at that compound, none other than the one and only screaming Jay Hawkins, who kind of plays like his, yeah. his, uh, kind of partner in Santeria and kind of manservant who lives at his little abode. And like I said, a crowd of, of onlookers gathers as he performs his, uh, mysticism, uh, which involves that corpse that he, uh, dug up as well as a, a large portion of cocaine that he snorts and uh, all kinds of uh, craziness of uh, pools, p- pools of blood. And uh, needless to say, this doesn't go unnoticed, especially uh, by a, an American uh, cop played by none other than James Gandolfini, who seems to have been uh, tracking uh, Javier Bardem's character, 
and then is is basically trying to make a bust on him. He knows that he's involved in some sinister shit, some drug trafficking, some corpse trafficking, and just general weirdness. And he wants to uh, put an end to this. And he's willing to go to all sorts of uh, physical harm to himself, trying to get Javier Bardem in cuffs. Um, now, are we supposed to believe that that Santeria stuff that... Javier Bardem is doing in this movie. Is that supposed to be like legitimate or like, I almost got the feeling that it's kind of like a nightmare alley scenario where he, you know, he knows that this is bullshit, but he's just kind of doing it to make money. I don't know. I, I think it could be, could be a little bit of both. I think he knows that he can make money off it, but I think he also believes in it. I, you know, he, he does give a, a few kind of impassioned speeches that, you know, he, uh, you know, is, is, kind of channeling you know the his aztec ancestors who uh practiced human sacrifice and things like that to gain power and i think he believes in it i think he's he's on board but i think he also realizes that it is a way to make money um so i think he's riding kind of both sides of the fence on that all right yeah uh but anyway he uh rosie perez uh becomes smitten with, with this crazy ass uh satanic priest uh and she likes it and and we find out that she is just as fucking nutso as he is because uh once they start to get romantically involved she immediately suggests hey why don't we get some people and kill and eat them and he's like fuck yeah let's do it you know as you do on a first date and so yeah, these course. two these two just go into uh the just in public and they look for people to kidnap. I mean, like very publicly, very blatantly just walking up, grab people. He's like, Hey, you want to kidnap this person? Like, nah, grab another guy. What about this guy? No. And eventually they find, uh, two young white kids, uh, who are, I guess like kind of, you know, tourist, uh, in, I think in Mexico or maybe somewhere on the border there, uh, and kidnap them. And they kidnap these two, and uh, basically the plan is to, in fact, ritualistically uh, kill and eat them. But as their adventures go on, they don't get around to doing that quite yet, although they do uh, rape both of them. So, uh, trigger warning there. And so it, it, it creates this weird dichotomy where you're like, what the hell? Am I supposed to be rooting for these two? Like, they're fucking not good people. Uh, but they're both equally twisted in a very weird way. It's kind of almost like a um, natural born killer scenario where, you know, these two people are in love and they're crazy passionate about one another, but they're also uh, fucking psychopaths. And so they're traveling from place to place, trying to evade not only James Gandolfini, but some rival uh, gangsters from Mexico that Javier Bardem has, has wronged in the past. And so they're just uh, constantly, uh, on the run and also trying to keep these two kids captive uh, long enough where they can eventually pull off this ritual to sacrifice them and potentially eat them. Um, but that may or may not actually happen. Uh, so it, this movie is fucking nuts. I mean, I can't really understate how nutty this movie is. This has everything turned up to 10 much like you'd expect from an Alex de la Iglesia movie. Uh, if you have seen 
Axion Mutante or, or Day of the Beast, you know that he definitely likes to likes the extremes, and this movie is definitely full of them. Uh, you get a lot of very extreme stuff in this. Like I said, everything from crazy satanic rituals to uh, like I said, some rape and some torture and uh, and some pretty crazy killings uh, that happened throughout this. Some some pretty crazy violence. Uh, poor James Gandolfini is a real punching bag in this. He through his uh, pursuit of these two uh, gets all fucked up in a almost comical manner, where every t- turn he's getting hit by a car, or, you know, knocked around or falls or something. By the end of the movie. He's bandaged up in a neck brace and in a cast. He's just not having any luck uh, tracking these guys down. But he is persistent. Uh, and then, like I said, this was uh, uh, his uh, Iglesias' first kind of U.S. offering. This did get released. I don't know if it got theatrically released in the States. I think it did. Maybe uh, it looks like it did very briefly. I don't remember this coming out at all. And, you know, at the time, 97, you would think that this especially with like kind of the height of this kind of crazy violent movie. Like, you know, like I said, with stuff like natural born killers and of course the Tarantino stuff and all the kind of stuff that was coming out at the time, you would have thought I would have heard of this, but this completely passed me by in the late nineties. And then, like I said, it did get released on home video under the title dance with the devil. But even that never even remember seeing that on my radar. And again, I was, I would have been the prime audience for this, but, um, but yeah, this movie ends with them uh, making a final trip to Mex- or to Las Vegas. So you get some old-timey 97 Las Vegas stuff in there. Um, get to see a lot of the cool sights uh, from from Las Vegas in 97. So that's a lot of fun. But yeah, I, I mean, I can see how people wouldn't like this. I mean, it is a very mixed bag, and it's kind of not the most... I mean, it's a kind of a disjointed story, and it's kind of a little bit all over the place and it is very unrealistic in a lot of, I mean, if you're the kind of person that watches a movie and goes, well, that could never happen or that wouldn't happen. You're going to hate this movie because it's fucking not realistic in the slightest. It's a lot of shit that happens and it's, you know, you got to kind of have to, you know, suspend disbelief for a lot of this, but, and it's also, like I said, pretty gnarly. Um, there is some pretty gnarly stuff in this. Uh, but overall, I still think this movie is a lot of fun. It's a very unique offering from 97. Um, you know, you, uh, you know, if you like stuff like, you know, Quentin Tarantino or natural born killers or Robert Rodriguez movies from this time, I think it has a, a bit of that, but with a, a very kind of sinister, undertone to it um despite his terrible hair cut and other poor fashion choices i think javier javier bardem whose name i always seem to choke on uh is very good in this i think rosie perez is equally good it's a, a great starring role for her and she's very sexy and very menacing in this and i think it's uh it's a good role for both of these and fairly Um, nude as well. Yeah. You get, I mean, the first shot of the movie is like a, like a Jaguar pulling a silk cover off her nude body. So yeah, you get to see a lot of, a lot of Rosie in this, a whole lot of Rosie as ACDC once said. And, uh, yeah, I, I'm all about it. Um, so yeah, I, I think this movie is a ton of fun. I don't think I like it as much as Axion Mutantes or day of the beast. I probably like it more than Witchin' and Bitchin', though. Um, but I do think it's definitely worth a watch, and uh, especially if you haven't 
uh, ever heard of it. Uh, I think it, it'll, and you like that kind of like nineties ultra violence. Uh, I think you'll, you'll have a lot of fun with this, but what did you guys think of Perdita Durango? Well, I like a little bit of the ultra violence, you know, there you that's go. what I always think. Um, yeah, I was excited to watch more of this guy's stuff. I haven't loved everything that he's made, but I like most of it, I think. So um, the first time that I heard about this was, I think, like a couple of years ago. They showed the trailer um, in between Joe Bob movies. I think, oh, like, okay. the new Blu- yeah, I think the new Blu-ray had just come out, so they showed the trailer between movies. And um, it was a little curious because it's not exactly a horror movie. but No. Um, yeah, but, but um, I mean, I like... All the better. I mean, it kind of, you know, it, it wouldn't seem out of place if, if it was done on the last drive-in. So, um, so yeah, so uh, this does kind of fit into that genre, like a couple of the movies you mentioned, whereas like in the 90s, like these kind of like indie directors were like kind of just doing Bonnie and Clyde stories. Like there was True Romance, and there was Natural Born Killers, and there was Wild at Heart, and there was... Um, Doom Generation. Yeah, Doom Generation. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it just seemed like, yeah, like like directors were kind of like very influenced by Bonnie and Clyde or, yeah, for whatever was, something was in the water that everybody kind of wanted to do a story like this. Well, uh, I think but, a lot of it was uh, when Billy Ocean's Caribbean Queen came out and he said, no more love on the run. And then they kind of went against that and said, no, we want love on the run. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think it was definitely the influence of Billy Ocean, yeah. Um. So yeah, so I'm glad that there's another movie in this genre. Um, and Rosie Perez is great. Uh, I've always liked her. Like I haven't seen like a ton of her stuff, but um, I used to watch White Men Can't Jump a lot as a kid, and I always thought she was like super cool because of that movie. Yeah. So I'm glad that she's in this. I like Javier Bardem, although I, I feel like I've really only seen him in like No Country for Old Men, um, maybe a couple other things. Uh, another great haircut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so he's really good in this. Uh, I like seeing that Gandolfini. Yeah, he's right. Essentially, yeah, it's it's good to see him like pre-Sopranos uh, with a yeah. mustache. This is early when he was still Gandolfini the Gray. <laughs> exactly. Come on, that that's a pretty good pull, right? That's not bad. That's a good one. That's a good one. Um, and yeah, he's essentially playing his same character as true romance so that's cool i like that um this guy was just kind of hunting down our bonnie and clyde's but um well he's a gangster in true romance he's a cop in this so yeah a little well, outside of that, I, I think yeah. he's dea yeah. officially right yeah that's right yes well he like serves the same purpose not exactly the same character but he serves the same purpose in both movies. right um and yeah it's just like fun to watch these people do bad stuff um I mean, like you said, sometimes it's a little too bad. Uh, like it gets very straw dogsy in that rape scene because, like, I think both of the victims like are for it, like halfway through it, which is like not not a cool thing. <laughs> like it makes it much much worse. Um, I like th- that girl in that scene. Uh, the girl that gets kidnapped—that's Heather Graham's sister. She's in like a couple of things, like here and there in the '90s, and like whenever she pops up. I always like her uh, as like sort of like a, oh, that person. I know them from some stupid thing. Um, but I never knew until watching this that it was Heather Graham's sister. Because I had to look oh, it up. I was yeah. like, Where, how do I know this girl? Um, and 
Yeah, I don't know. There's like not a lot. I mean, a lot of what I would want to say about this is a spoiler, and I don't think anybody should be spoiled. But there's a lot of fun stuff at the end. They go to a lot of cool locations, like that, um, the airplane graveyard from like Can't oh, yeah. Love. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is like a cool a cool place to film. Uh, like they find a lot of cool places to film in this, which which I, I like, I respect. And then, like you said, they get to, to Vegas at the end and they go downtown, which I think would like they, they show like the big uh, like laser, not lasers, but like the big light show awning thing that they have. Yeah. Um, Talking about the, the Fremont Street experience. Yeah. The Fremont Street experience, which I think was like pretty new at the time. I think they put that in in like the mid to late 90s. So it was probably pretty novel at the time to have that in a movie. Um, and it's nice to see. It's a nice experience down there. So. Uh, I like this movie a great deal. Probably my favorite of this guy's stuff, I would say. Oh, yeah. So there was a semi-sequel to Wild at Heart that was out there this whole time and nobody told me about it? Because that's what this movie is. Did did you guys realize that? Well, I mean, yeah, with the Perdita Durango name. Well, it's well. It's also so Barry Gifford wrote the book, and the book series includes entries like Wild at Heart and Perdita Durango. Um, this is yeah, book wise, this is one of the sequels. Um, I think Isabella Rossellini played the Perdita Durango character in David Lynch's Wild at Heart. So that's correct. Yeah, yeah. So it, these are, I mean, they're pretty different movies tonally, and and yeah. you know, obviously not the same filmmakers involved, but both based on the same book series, which, you know, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that. Didn't know anything about this movie. I don't think I ever heard of this movie. Um, like you guys, I, you know, I've liked this guy's other movies that we've done on the show, you know, I probably especially liked mutant action. Uh, but I thought witching and bitching was fun too. Uh, but yeah, I still haven't taken a deep dive on this director, but I'm feeling like based on what I've seen so far, maybe I should be doing that at some point soon because this guy is, uh, impressing me you know especially with these early movies like the fact that he's able to make a movie like this pretty you know young in his career and i think that's kind of impressive and um you know like you guys were saying this is the kind of movie that if i had seen this at 15 years old i think i would have been over the moon for it because it's got all these vibes for things that i loved at the time you know it's got tarantino vibes natural barn killers you know doom generation a little bit of Cohen flavor in this. It's just a part of that whole, you know, pantheon of fun, weird, twisted kind of road killer movies uh, that we don't really get anymore, I guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I love this kind of thematic material. I love these actors in this. Uh, I don't think that I knew Javier Bardem at the time, but even as a kid, I think I would have really loved this guy's performance. Um, and Rosie. Oh Perez, yeah. yeah. Well, I just remembered, uh, one of the things that endeared me immediately in this movie is a very, towards the beginning, Javier Bardem robs a bank, uh, wearing a Lucha mask, uh, specifically a Santo mask though. Yeah. You know, who doesn't love that? Yeah. And there's, you know, a scene later on where there's a, a scene set at a bar where there's some Lucha competition going on and, and a little makeshift ring at the bar. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of cool, like Lucha stuff. Oh yeah. A lot of cool Lucha, like Javier Bardem has that old Lucha sticker album that he uses in a menacing way, surprisingly. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, this is one for Lucha fans as well. And, and Rosie Perez, yeah, I thought was great in this. You know, she's kind of weird in that I, I feel like I've always known Rosie Perez and I've always felt like, oh, this is a famous woman that's in a lot of movies. And then you look at the body of work and I'm, and I'm thinking like, are there some titles that are missing? Because she didn't work nearly as much as I thought she did. Maybe it's just like appearances on talk shows and stuff like that. And just her personality is so outsized that she makes an impression. You know, you, you see her once and you remember it for a long time. Side note, she looks a little bit like Tora Santana from Faster Pussycat in this. Well, and I think that was intentional because for a good chunk of this movie, she's wearing almost an identical outfit yeah. to what Tora Santana wears in Faster Pussycat. So I think that was probably an intentional stylistic choice. Yeah, and it, you know, it works and, you know, it's a, it's a cool movie to, to reference and fits in thematically with this movie. So I'm down for that. Um James Gandolfini, I thought was very funny in this. Uh, Alex Cox is also in this. Is oh yeah, as another and, cop, I think. Yeah, I think he's another DEA agent, and his and James Gandolfini's relationship is very funny in this because they hate each other. Uh, well, at least James Gandolfini hates him, and Alex Cox is very like no, you know, nonplussed about everything, just very, you know, nothing but business. And James Gandolfini just continuously getting more and more pissed at Alex Cox's character. I think is pretty hilarious. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. And overall, I mean, those cutaways to the cops, I think, provide that kind of comedic relief that you need in this movie because it is a pretty intense movie, like you mentioned. But, you know, great locations in this. There's that cool uh, scene set at the Tijuana border where they it seems like they really filmed all that stuff right there at the Tijuana border, which is kind of cool. That they, I mean, like it's like within view of like the the crossing itself, you can see like what I'm guessing are the actual border guards letting real people across. Cause I'm imagining they didn't shut down the border just for this independent movie in 1997. So cool to, to be there in that place with these people and, and feel what that's like. And um, yeah, just a lot of cool locations. The Saguaro national park with the cool cactuses out there in Tucson is featured pretty heavily. Uh, there's a cool roadside motel that is shaped like a, Texas Longhorn skull. Oh yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And then you, you know the Vegas stuff that you mentioned. This movie only spends a few minutes in Vegas, but you get a ton of classic neon signage and good shot of the Excalibur Hotel that we stayed at, and mm-hmm. a little bit of the Treasure Island fireworks show that is now gone. So it was fun to see that. I have to admit, you know, when you pick this, and and not to be racist, but when I you know when I see a title in Spanish in the year nineteen ninety seven. My first thought was, well, the pixels are going to be garbage on this movie. And I was delighted to find out that no, like this, uh, this movie with a Spanish title that I guess is effectively 90% in the English language. So it's not really, it's like not too much of a foreign film, but. I mean, it's a, a name, a Spanish name. It's not yes. really even in Spanish. That's true. Yeah. But from a distance, I'm like, oh no, this is going to look like garbage. It doesn't. It looks great. You know, the, the current uh, Severin Blu-ray looks perfect. And beyond that, like the production values are really high, you know, like there's cool camera work, like lots of big camera movements, these cool overhead shots that are way up in the sky, cool film noir lighting. And for a movie that is like this demented, I would never expect it to look this good or be made this professionally. So I think that is kind of impressive. 
what else did I want to mention? Oh, they, they play a clip in this from the sequel to Ratsuki Doji, The Legend of Overfiend, which is one of the most demented, disgusting uh, hentai anime movies ever made. Uh, so oh, that's yeah. cool that they included that in this. I didn't expect to see that. Uh, didn't expect to see Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Love him. Great to see him in this. I will say at, at a certain point, this movie does kind of buckle under its own weight a little bit where it is like so unhinged from the get-go that you feel like maybe this two-hour-ish runtime is a little bit long to support something like this, you know? Like, yeah, it's kind of hard to sustain full interest when things are this nuts the entire time. And, at, you know, at a certain point, it does start to feel kind of aggressively unpleasant. But I still really like this overall. Yeah, I mean, generally, you know, I'm just kind of a sucker for these American West road pictures. If you throw in a spree killing on top of that, uh, you got my money. And this is, you know, this does it so stylishly and and memorably that I'm I'm looking forward to watching this again, you know. So if you like things like Natural Born Killers or... Even if you just like things like Motorama and you want to see the American West uh, depicted on film, man, this is this is a good pick. Oh, cool! Plus, you, you know, if you get to see uh, if you're into Javier Bardem, you do get to see him in very tight underwear that pretty much reveals everything going on down there. So that's you know that's another thing. Well, hopefully his pubic hair was a little bit more styled than his <laughs> regular hair. Let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. Well, yeah, I'm glad you guys like this because, um, yeah, like I said, I'm a big fan of Alex de la Iglesias now. I, like I said, um, now that we've done Mutant Action and Day of the Beast and uh, Perdita Durango and Witch and a Bitch, and I think, like I said, Last Circus will probably be the next one uh, that I pick for the show because I think that's a lot of fun and I think you guys will like that. But, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you dug it. This was a lot of fun to, to kind of discover this one from, you know, a lot of times we're kind of discovering stuff from, you know, before our time but i feel like this was truly kind of like a a lost movie from our time you know like i like i said you know this came out when i should have been the prime audience for this so it's a bummer that i missed it in the 90s but uh i'm glad that finally uh get to see it now so yeah like i said if you haven't seen it or even haven't heard of it check out perdita durango i think you'll have a good time but i think that just about wraps it up we are going to take a quick break And when we come back, we are going to get into our final film of the evening, and that is The Great Yokai War from 2005. So stick around.
それが我らの力となる大切な人を守るため少年は立ち上がるやめろじいちゃん加藤倒すなにこれこの私が倒せるとでも思っていたのか愚か者めやめて愛と平和の大冒険ファンタジー妖怪大戦争だ気付けや Welcome back to Junk Fod Dinner.、Uh, the next and final movie of this episode is going to be The Great Yokai War from 2005. This is a film directed by Rikishi Mike. You may remember him as the director of Audition, Ichi the Killer, 13 Assassins, The Happiness of the Categories,、uh, Visitor Q, about a hundred other movies,、uh, most of them absolute fucking. And、This、for that is, move where he puts his giant butt in your face in the corner of the ring. <laughs> yeah, and he ran over Stone Cold that time. He did it for The Rock. We all remember Rikishi Mike.、Um, I wanted to do this movie because I've been kind of interested in a while. It's been on my radar for a bit.、Uh, this and the movie that it's kind of loosely based on the,、um, the 100 Yokai's、uh, trilogy from like the 60s or whatever. I haven't seen those, but. All these yokai movies have been on my radar. I've been kind of interested in yokais lately. And then we've also, of course, been watching、uh, Gigigi no Kitaro over on the,、uh, the bonus Patreon episodes. And those are very yokai centric. And we watched a couple of episodes if you're not over there.、Uh, this is some background for you guys, but you should be over there. You should、uh, be listening to these things. They're very fun. But、uh, we watched a couple of episodes where,、uh, entitled The Great Yokai War, That、um, it's kind of based on an old folklore story, but in that story,、uh, Western monsters come to Japan to invade, and then the, the 
Japanese yokai uh, have to fight them off and protect their homeland. And that's sort of what this is based on. This is based on that original trilogy, the Gigigi no Kitaro story, and the original folklore. Um, and and so I, I wanted to see it after watching all those uh, no Kitaro episodes. I was like, yeah, let's let's dive into this. Let's let's get heavy into these uh, yokais. Um, and any excuse to watch Rikishi Mike is is always welcome. So in this, uh, a young boy whose name is Tadashi. Um, he is. He gets involved in this great yokai war when he is picked um, at a local like event by by a luck dragon type of a thing um, to be the chosen it's a Kirin. one. Oh, yeah, that is right. That is right. Yeah, yeah. They, they uh, it's a Kirin, um, which they named the beer after. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, it's there's like funny jokes later when like the the one guy's like drinking. The, the Kieran beers and stuff like that. And the little dragon is of course on the logo. Um, and yeah, so they keep making like little funny references to that. Yeah, that is the guy. Um, and so, so young Tadashi um, is tasked with going to Goblin Mountain and finding a sword, which, uh, which will help him kind of uh, in this yokai war. Um, part of what's happening is that, but Gogo from Kill Bill and also the girl from uh, Battle Royale, uh, she's in this. She plays a villainess uh, whose name I forget. You're talking but, about the lady with the beehive hair? Yeah, the lady with the beehive hair. That's uh, Gogo from Kill Bill. Um, her name's Aggie, I think, maybe. Um, but she's great. It was cool to see her in this. Uh, I, I like her in both of those other things I've seen her in. And so it was fun to see her. She's got this fun beehive, as Sean mentioned, and she's a very big villainess. She's going around kidnapping um, the yokai of Japan and then kind of pulling a Roger rabbit and kind of dipping them into into this machine uh, that, uh, well, I guess unlike Roger rabbit, uh, turns them into big mechanical monsters. It's sort of a fusion of yokai and, and cyborg type of a thing. Uh, she's working for a very mysterious business suited man uh, who is even more evil than she is. And so Tadashi is kind of being uh, stalked by a few yokais. Uh, he has a couple of scary encounters. There's a real super fucking scary encounter um, early in the movie where like uh, this horrible monster is like born in a barn and then starts <laughs> crying blood and talking about how the yokai war is coming, and then it dies. Yeah, that was. I mean, I, that's totally Takashi Miike, but it seems so out of place in this movie, which is like essentially, f- for the most part, kind of a kids' movie. I mean, it's like PG thirteen. It feels like a never ending story type movie, but then out of nowhere, just like towards the beginning, they have that crazy half human, half like. <laughs> pig monster that's just born screaming and it's like Mm -hmm. (laughs) well there's also a scene in this though where they put it like a pet hamster in a microwave so like this movie is a kid's movie but it's also not afraid to go like weird gross and dark yeah yeah there's a couple of like a lot of the times the the yokais are played for like whimsy uh but yeah sometimes they're scary too like that scene on the bus 
with Tadashi and like the wheel yokai shows up and like a couple of other like really scary yokais are like knocking or like kind of scratching at the windows and stuff like that's scary. And then the first time we see the Kappa, that lovely, lovely Kappa, um, Tadashi is like kind of at the water and then this, this Kappa rises up out of the water and grabs him and it's like fucking horrifying. And then you realize a few minutes later, he's, um, you know, like the comic relief of the movie. I read in my patented research that the young actor who played Tadashi, who's like 10 years old or something like that, he thought that that character, who's all practical makeup and and stuff like that, he thought that that character was an actual Kappa. And so, as is the custom with with Kappas, uh, if you feed them cucumbers, they will become your friend. He fed that guy cucumbers during the, the shoot of the film. Uh, thinking he was an actual Kappa. And the actor who played the Kappa was so, like, he didn't want to break the kid's heart and, like, essentially tell him Santa Claus isn't real. So he just pretended to be a Kappa the whole time that they were filming this and kept eating his cucumbers. And I think that that's really fucking cute. That's very wholesome. Mm-hmm. Probably the most wholesome uh, thing to ever happen on a Takashi Miike movie. Probably. Um, at one point early on, uh, when the, the Kappas are all, or the Yokais are all um, in jail and in this cage, um, Agi, I think that's her name, the beehive lady, she spits in the face of the umbrella Yokai, which I liked a lot because, as, as we've talked about, I hate that fucking Yokai. He's evil. I like that. Um, later on, there's a fun scene where the umbrella Yokai, like they're trying to get a posse together to fight, fight this lady. Uh, so they gather up a bunch of Yokais, but the umbrella Yokai. Uh, says that he's useless and that he cannot <laughs> do anything. So he declines to help them. And uh, he also points out that Wall, Wall is also useless. He's a, one of our favorite yokais as well. Uh, he's just a wall. And some others of our favorite yokais show up. Uh, Roll of Cotton is here. Some of the other yokais fly on him to get from point A to B, which I think is cute. Uh, the Snow Woman, uh, who is who's one of my favorites, uh, she's here. She doesn't help them very much, but uh, she looks very cool. Like she's in the background of a lot of scenes and no matter where she is, it's snowing on her. I think that's cool looking. Um, and yeah, so young Tadashi posses up with a, a group of yokais, uh, finds the sword and then has to, has to free everybody. He also has like this little uh, Pokemon type, like little like gerbily guy. Uh, who's like helping him do this, which is like just a very cheap puppet, but the way that it's used in the movie, like you really like fall in love with this fucking thing. Uh, I forget its name. It's like Sensuki or something like that. Um, based on another real yokai. And uh, yeah, it was, I thought it was pretty masterful the way that Takashi Miike makes you care about this thing. That is like one of the cheapest effects I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. He's either like the worst flash animation CG, or he's like, essentially just a sock with like with eyes glued onto it. Like it's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, the kid's really good in this. The cast is all really good. All the yokais are like just fucking wonderful. Like this is the kind of movie that if you're like into yokais, uh, which I think that we all are and our, our, our love of yokais grows every day. Um, you'll probably just want to watch this in slow motion or like freeze frame it. Cause I mean, every second of this movie, there's like a hundred yokais on screen, especially later. Um, when all the yokais show up because they're told that there's going to be a festival. 
and like they're misled into believing spoiler alert that there's a big festival and i i love that i think it's so fun that like hundreds of thousands of yokai show up for a fun party uh i think this is a masterpiece i'm very glad that we watched this and that i picked this and that uh kataro um led us to this lots of kataro references in this too by the way which i'm sure you guys will uh, i'll leave it to you guys to talk about you guys love kataro too so um so yeah i think this is just truly wonderful. What uh, what do you guys think about the Great Yokai War? Yeah, I I have seen that original trilogy from from Daiei Films from the sixties, and I like them. I mean, they're they're not perfect, but they're you know they're pretty fun. Um, I had been holding off seeing this one though, I think mostly because like my favorite part of the original trilogy was like the rubbery practical effects, and I was thinking you know. This 2005 movie is probably going to be plastered with 2005 CGI. And on top of that, not even Hollywood grade CGI. And so, you know, I I was just kind of scared that it would look like trash. And while it is kind of plastered with 2005 non-Hollywood CGI, I don't think this movie looks like trash necessarily, uh, which, you know, that's, that is something. I, I don't think this is a great looking you know, masterfully shot film, but for something that was shot for, I think between 10 and $15 million us, which seems pretty low considering the number of effects in this movie, like the whole movie from start to finish is an effect shot. There's probably no single scene in this that doesn't have, you know, at least some CGI and, and a lot of practical effects too. So, you know, the fact that it looks as good as it does, I, you know, I, I, call that a small victory i I do think it's interesting that we saw the indiana jones rolling boulder in two different movies this week and the movie that did it 50 years prior had one that looked a lot better than this crummy cg one but you know that's that is what it is um and i like the location go ahead also uh a note on on the crummy cg for some of these yokais like i i think it's kind of forgivable like the cg is like really not great in a lot of parts, but the designs for the monsters are so good and so like energetic that I think it it, it makes up for a lot of the the downfalls of the CG. I think that's true, although I'm not sure how much credit Mike gets for that when you know these are historical yokais that have well, you know, yeah, yeah, existed not not just in history books but in real life. These yokais existed, so you know, if I go outside and take a photograph of a crow that's on the power line, it's not like I designed it. Um, but yeah, yeah, they look okay considering how cheaply they were made and they're all populating these very nice looking environments. You know, there's, um, I think this is all said primarily in this, I should have wrote down the name of the town, but it's a, it's a real life town on kind of the West coast of Japan that is effectively like a yokai based town. Like their whole tourism is based on yokais and people going there and, checking out these little yokai festivals that they've got. Uh, they even have a Shigeru Mizuki museum there, a museum for the guy that created Gigeke no Kitaro, uh, with a bunch of cool Kitaro sculptures that I would love to go check out someday. So it was cool to see that town in this. And, you know, as a result, I think this is a fairly relaxing watch, you know, considering it's about a monster war, you know, but the combination of this pleasant kind of countryside type location and, you know, the, the camera work, which I felt was 
pretty solid, um, you know, minimal shaky cam in this. Like it's, you know, very professionally shot movie uh, made this just kind of a comfortable watch. You know, I will say, though, if, you know, if we as a people are going to be doing so many of these movies where half the characters are CG, can we at least do one of them Roger Rabbit style instead? Like, how cool would it have been to have like 2D animated yokais walking around, you know, instead of CG for once? Yeah. I mean, I think that'd be fun. Yeah. Like I said, I do think that this movie draws a lot of inspiration from Roger Rabbit. So, yeah, it would have been a fun way to go with it. Yeah, but I am glad that we saw uh, Kataro first because, like you said, there's a lot of references to Kataro in this, um, including casting Shigeru Mizuki himself in a small role. He's like a village elder in this. I thought that was cool. And then there's even a joke in this about Roll of Cotton being from the Kataro mangas. Uh, so that you know that was funny and just fun to see Roll of Cotton in this and, and to see him together, you know, with his friends, plaster wall and Azuki bean washer and, and all the greats to see them together again was cool. You know, if pressed, I guess my favorite performance in this is probably the weird red cat man guy whose legs yeah. are fused together and he hops around. I love that guy. Don't know his name, but uh, the actor was super committed and really went all in on this weird cat man character. <clears throat> yeah, it's almost yeah. kind of werewolf looking almost. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Uh but he's cool. Um I also love the Kappa in well, this. I forget his name, but he has sort of a weird name. His name is like John Smith, the great yokai blacksmith or something like that. Like Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's a smith of some kind. Yeah. He's cool though. And the Kappa's cool, you know. I'm I'm glad that he's one of the main dudes in this. And overall, yeah, I mean just I was satisfied with the number of yokais we got. The big Matsuri scene, you know, the festival delivers like thousands of yokais, which is cool. That's kind of what we were complaining about when we watched the, the yokai war episodes of Kotaro. Uh, overall, yeah, this reminded me a little bit of Watari, the ninja boy. It's got some Monster Squad vibes, too. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just a fun time. Yeah, I'm glad that Japanese kids have this. If I were a Japanese parent, I'd be popping this on the TV, whether my kid wanted it or not, you know? And I think as an adult, it doesn't quite have the old-timey yokai feeling that I want. But this is still a fun one, you know, especially if you're going to watch this with friends. If you got friends that like Japanese stuff, you know, this is the kind of movie that you can kind of goof on with your friends because it's a very goofy movie. Um, And yeah, if you go into this, you know, just knowing that it's going to be basically a live action cartoon for kids. I think you'll have a lot of fun with this, Um, but still worth checking out those originals. uh, If you got the time, I think all of these are streaming on the arrow channel. Currently the new one and the original three. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I like this too. Um, I was excited to watch this because I had, I have seen, one of those 60s yokai movies and like you said i like uh, kataro that we've been watching and i've been, been enjoying that manga and yeah so this this it had a little like sean said it, it has a different feel from those old-timey yokai things 
Uh, it does feel very modern. I mean, very 2005 modern, but modern nonetheless. And it feels very much just kind of like a, a classic kid goes on an epic, mystical, magical adventure. Kind of, like I said, the never-ending story uh, definitely kind of came to mind while watching this. You know, stuff like this where uh, a kid is kind of traveling through this m- magical world and encountering all these uh, various you know, mythical creatures and, and either befriending them or having to, to fight against them, um, juxtaposed with like, you know, his real world conflicts. And so in this one, you know, the kid, you know, has a grandpa who's got dementia and he's got a mom, uh, and, a, a who's kind of like always working and a, a sister that doesn't live with them anymore. And so, you know, you kind of get this kid's backstory and, and, you know, he's kind of like picked on at school. He's, a, you know, the classic, you know, kid struggles and then escapes those struggles into a, to a magical world, which again has been a great formula for a lot of kids movies for years. So watching this, I, I definitely was, there was kind of, while it was, you know, like I said, very modern in a 2005 kind of way, it also had a, a real sense of nostalgia because it did remind me a lot of those kind of magical adventure kids movies from my past. And so watching this, I I agree, Sean, I would definitely, you know, if I had a kid Japanese or not, uh, I think I I would be into having them watch this. And, you know, I think they would definitely, I think kids would definitely enjoy this um, to watch it now because it does have a lot of those classic elements. And like you said, just uh, a wild array of, of mystical characters and yeah, I, it is a mixed bag when it comes to the effects, the CG and the practical effects. It, it, it's wild how much it varies in quality on both those scales. Cause there's some CG that looks like absolute dog shit. And there's something you're like, that's actually pretty good for 2005. And same with the practical effects. Like there's some makeup effects that look pretty good. Um, like you said, like the Kappa and that one footed. Uh, werewolf guy. Uh, I think the the makeup effects on those guys look really good. But then you've got like that little hamster thing that looks like it's a stuffed animal right off the rack. You know what I mean? Uh, so it it's a wild uh, array of quality on a lot of these. And and I guess that's to be expected when you've got literally thousands of monsters and creatures to create on screen. So. Um, I guess that's kind of to be expected. And again, for Takashi Miike especially, I mean, this seems like probably one of his bigger budget movies. I mean, because, I mean, he, I, with his prolific output, I, he also runs the gamut of quality and budget in his films. I mean, some of his movies are super low budget, and some of them are like this, which I feel kind of like almost, you know, studio blockbustery. Uh, but he's usually more like we've said on kind of the adult side, but he does do this kid stuff. I mean, like he did zebra man, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but so, compare yeah, this to the, yeah. to the last Mike that we did, which was visitor Q, right? That was a Mike, I think. Yeah. yeah. It would not be more different. Right. Yeah. So I love that about him that he can work on kind of all sides of the spectrum. Um, and I think this one's fairly successful. I mean, like you guys mentioned, it is, there are some parts that are a little, little wonky and there's some stuff in here that, uh, doesn't quite work. Uh, but I think for the most part, 
it, it is a lot of fun, and I think it all works very well. I agree with you, Parker. I think the, the, the lead ki- kid in this movie is very good, um, especially for a child actor. I mean, child actors, as we've had on the show, they can really get annoying if not cast properly and not written properly. But I think this kid does a really good job with his performance, and he's very likable just from the get-go. And you really kind of feel for this kid with the situation and you want to root for him along the way. So I think he does a great job. And I I really liked when, you know, there's a lot of kind of tongue in cheek stuff in this, as you mentioned, you know, references to other stuff, but also just kind of them winking in the camera. Like when he gets his like hero suit and sword, like he even kind of looks like, isn't this a bit over the top, you know? And so I love stuff like that where it's kind of self-aware and kind of winking at the camera and kind of, you know, letting us know, yeah, we know some of this is kind of over the top and goofy, but let's just have fun with it. And I think that's kind of the spirit of this film. And even if you're not familiar with yokai or or just the kind of folklore around it, I still think you can have a lot of fun with this because like I said, I think it has a, a kind of universal charm to it that if you like kind of these epic magical quest uh, kind of movies, I think, uh, you're, you're, you're bound to have a lot of fun in this. And uh, because it is Mike, like you said, there are some surprisingly kind of gross elements to this as well. Uh, so I think that is also fun. Like, so it's not just a kid's movie. I think there's um, stuff in here for, uh, you know, grizzled ghouls like us to enjoy. So overall, I thought this was, was really cool and uh, a, a cool entry into the, the yokai uh, folklore that I'm aware of. And so, yeah, I would definitely recommend this. Hell yeah. It's a masterpiece. Um, well, all right. Well, I think that does it for the Great Yokai War. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to choose one of you to carry the sword uh, from Goblin Mountain. Well, that just about wraps up episode number 665 of Junk Food Dinner. We'd like to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. If you like the show, make sure you check out our website, junkfooddinner.com, where you can not only find our monthly episodes of Junk Food Dinner, but in the interim weeks, you can find our episodes of Junk Food Supper, where Sean and Parker break down a single movie for your listening pleasure. You can also find all 665 back episodes of Junk Food Dinner on that website, as well as wherever you get your podcasts. But of course, you know that because you're listening to us right now. Uh, but if you want uh, to get in contact with us, let us know what you think about the show. We encourage that as well. Give us a call on the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Give us a call. Let us know what you think about Junk Food Dinner, Junk Food Supper, or any manner of things. Tell us about your dreams. Tell us about your regrets. Tell us about your deepest, darkest desires. But just give us a call and let your voice be heard on the show. You can also hit us up on the social medias, you know, the Facebooks, the Twitters, the Instagrams, all that stuff. But where the real action is, is, of course, in the Discord. If you are already on Discord, uh, just search for Junk Food Dinner, send a request, get the invite in, and there you'll have it. You'll be in a, uh, a multi-platform uh, chat experience with not only your boys at Junk Food Dinner, but all the wonderful fans and friends of Junk Food Dinner in the Junk Food Dinner universe. So make sure you get involved with that if you aren't already. 
uh, next month. It is a big one. It's going to be episode 666. Yes, it's 666. And how else are you supposed to do episode 666 without doing a bunch of Satan movies? And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to be doing Al Yukarda from 1977, Invitation to Hell from 1984, and Cabin in the Sky from 1943. So all kinds of satanic shit from all kinds of decades. You're not going to want to miss it. It's going to be an evil good time. So make sure you tune in next month for our big 666 extravaganza. It's going to be a hell of a time. Unintended. So until next time, this is Kevin Moss for Parker Bowman and Sean Byron saying adios, everybody. We will see you in hell.